0: Greetings, greetings, fellow WhoGazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We have a packed program for you today. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by my longtime friend, Jan Fennec. She is a New York-based Doctor Who writer. She is, in fact, the third consecutive Doctor Who guest that I've had in the New York area, and the first of those three who is a native New Yorker. So, very excited to be talking to her about her fandom journey, her writing, and, of course, this week's episode, Doctor Who and the Claws of Axos. Some interesting news from the world of Doctor Who. The... Covers for at least four of the new target novelizations due in the summer of 2022 have been released and previewed on the Twitter feed, so we have seen covers for the David Fisher adaptations of The Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara, and we've also seen covers for the thematically similar titles, The Eaters of Light and The Fires of Pompeii, Light and Fire. I will probably not be covering those books on this podcast until we reach them in publication order. We are still in 1977 here, so 2022 is quite a long way out. But I will be covering two out of the five books on Trap 1 this summer. And on Trap 1, we do plan on discussing all five. So that's very exciting news. We also this week had the casting reveal that Neil Patrick Harris is going to play one of the Doctor's greatest enemies in the new Doctor Who episode's currently being filmed by Russell T. Davis. And there's a lot of online speculation as to exactly which character he's going to be. They're not exactly keeping it a secret, with lots of clues being shown in the available set dressings, but of course this is RTD, so there might well be some unexpected twist. And there's almost certainly a lot that we don't know. I'll just say that growing up as a teen in the late 80s, Neil Patrick Harris was a very big deal for me because I found Doogie Howser, M.D. to be a very influential and important sitcom personally. Now granted, that was almost 35 years ago, and he has done many, many things in his career ever since. But that is the role that has stuck with me the longest, and there's rarely a day that goes by when the distinctive Doogie Howser theme melody is not playing in my head on almost infinite loop. But we have, like I said, a lot to discuss. Uh, We're going to have my friend Jan on after the break for the weekly conversation. And then after that, I'll be breaking down the text of the novelization of The Clause of Axos. Let's get to it. So, my next guest is a friend that I made the very first night of the very first Long Island Doctor Who convention way back in 2013, even before the 50th anniversary special or Night of the Doctor had aired. And we were placed on the same panel celebrating the Peter Davison years, and we've pretty much been friends ever since. Jan, welcome to Doctor Who Literature.
1: Hi, Jason. How you doing?
0: So... You and I both grew up on Long Island, both probably were watching Doctor Who at the same stations at around the same time, but of course we didn't meet until the 50th anniversary.
1: Right. I was going to say, I don't know if you went to Icon at any point in time, so we may have like passed one another or not, because um, that was my only Doctor Who fandom really in the Metro New York metro area, so...
0: I was at the, the one convention in Manhattan in 1985, but I was 11 going on 12 and didn't know anybody. The Icons, I never went to. So my very first con on Long Island was the one in 2013.
1: Oh, wow. I did not know that. So, yeah, I I don't think I ever went to any in Manhattan. I used to go to the ones in Chicago. and We'll talk about that more later. But, um, yeah, the only local, like I said, the only local area stuff I really did was Icon. So I guess we... That probably was the first time we ever met unless we crossed paths somewhere, you know, between Comac and Syosset without, <laughs> without knowing <laughs> it.
0: it it's, it's it's possible, you know, you, you never know. But I, I, I never made any high school field trips to the Comac Motor Inn, so I was never really out in your neck of the woods. <laughs> True fact, I've
1: never been in there. I've only driven by it for the last... 50 odd years. But when I was, our high school graduation, I actually didn't have friends who thought about renting a room there just so we could throw like a, a graduation party. And then they kind of chickened out at the last minute. So I've never stepped foot anywhere near there. Just, But it's right around the corner from my house. So I pass it all the time.
0: My level of popularity in high school in the late 80s was such that I was never invited to the Comac Motor Inn. And I was also a Doctor Who fan. I'm sure those two facts are totally unrelated.
1: Well, I was too, and like I said, it was just a a group of my nerdy friends who thought about doing this for graduation. And then if they did it, they didn't invite me in the end because they stopped talking to me a week before graduation. So
0: who knows? (sighs) You and I, however, have both been pretty prolific getting published in the outside in books, but you have gone one better and you have actually co-authored a book. So let's talk about that first.
1: Okay, well, I am one of six people who co-authored the Red, White, and Who – the story of doctor who in America. Um, and I was probably the lowest person on the totem pole there. Um, it was a project that Jennifer Adams, Kelly and Stephen Hill and Rob Warnock, um, were working on for like eight years before they brought me on to do work on that. But, um, it was one of those things where my friends in Chicago, who I've known forever, um, the late Jennifer Adams Kelly and I were best friends from the age of 13 onward, And I'm the person who got her into doctor who, um, the chicago chicago was like the hub of doctor who fandom especially in like the 80s going into the 90s and they were probably part of the the premier club at the time which was called um the federation they did a video zine they did a print scene um they went to all sorts of midwest cons doing costume contests and panels and this and that and the other thing so they really were in fandom from the early 80s onward and um, at some point they suddenly realized nobody had written a book about american fandom And so they started doing the research and doing lots and lots of stuff. And then sort of, it it sort of became a hub where other people they knew, including myself got asked to to do work on it. And I went, my main thing in there was that there was surveys um, that were sent out. It was an internet survey um, asking people all sorts of stuff, favorite doctors, favorite episodes, favorite companions, how they got into it. Um, You know, the things that, you know, what, what else do you do in fandom? You know, was it, you know, do you costume, do you, write filks do you do fan art do you just you know do you do videos whatever so it was a very in-depth trying to find out like what the average american doctor who fan does and the book actually came out um and um but it took forever because it just kept kind of going on and on and um i think they did surveys initially and then it kind of got stalled so then i did them the last year or two of uh before publication and um to my knowledge it's still the only book on american doctor who fandom that's still out there because nobody else has really known what's going on with it and because there's been a lot of books about fandom in general uk fandom etc but not the whole american side um okay yeah it was 2017 that the book came out so and the other thing that jennifer um steve rob etc they all were involved with chicago visions and and now currently chicago tardis which is the second longest running Doctor Who convention in the United States. Galley's the, the longest running. Gallifrey won in uh, Los Angeles. And then Visions, which then kind of morphed into Chicago TARDIS. And I know Chicago TARDIS has been running for quite some time also. So
0: I was at two of the last three Visions because I was living in the Midwest for law school. So I was at Visions 1996 and ninety seven. I can probably still draw a floor plan of the Hyatt O'Hare, just based on my memories of those two (laughs) long weekends. Uh, Due to having just graduated law school and working at starvation wages, if that, I had to miss Visions 98, and I believe that was the last one. And then I was back in New York before I even found out if there was going to be a Visions 99.
1: Were you at either one of those? Uh, No, I was actually at the first... Three. I went, so that was 1990 1991 and 1992 I can't remember if I was at 93 or not but what happened was that the other thing that I do um, or was doing at the time was um, I, I deal in dolls and I have a couple books out on, on doll collecting and so friends of ours were doing um, had a show on the Sunday of Thanksgiving at Stony Brook University in fact the same area um, in the sports complex which is also where Icon used to be held um, and I kind of couldn't get out of doing that. So it was very hard because, unfortunately, Visions and Chicago TARDIS as well were always on Thanksgiving weekend. And so I just, I couldn't get away. So I wound up having to stay in New York after the first couple of years. And um, I, I did get to Chicago TARDIS later on because the in terms of dolls, I mean, eBay took over everything. So I stopped doing doll shows, but there was a time where between March and, and November of every year, I was somewhere on the East Coast doing a doll, show, doll toy and teddy bear show um, between Maine and like Virginia. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. It used to be very, very like tied up with that. But just, you know, internet sales and everything, the shows kind of dwindled. But, um, I was at the, the first, like I said, at least three, maybe four visions. Um, and I helped Jennifer because I was sort of her assistant. She was like involved with programming. We helped run the costume contest. Um, uh, we helped out backstage in the cabaret, which was sort of a talent contest with the guests that, used to be a staple of cons and i think the guests all just decided that they didn't want to spend their time doing that so unless there's something special um i don't know of any cons that do that anymore but we used to do that and we did some programming we'd help out in the photo studio we were sort of like Jacksonville trade um but jen was like very involved if you went in 96 um i'm sure she was there but she had just had her kid um or she no yeah she just had the kid because um she was born in October, so she probably wasn't around a lot. <laughs> she was probably backstage, and also, you know, dealing with a newborn. Um, and ninety-seven was probably the first one year old, so you probably that's why you didn't see her. But yeah, Steve is still around. Steve is still working with Chicago Tardis. So, um, but they were they were all the people that did this book, and they like know everybody. So, because they were sort of the forerunners of hardcore American fandom, I think. Other than, I guess there were some people in Los Angeles, aside from Sean Lyons, who runs uh, Gallifrey One. So,
0: And what was your entree into Doctor Who Phantom in the first place? When did you discover the show? What was your first episode, if you can recall?
1: Oh, I can recall very, very strongly. Um, I actually first discovered Dr. Who in a hotel room in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon in the UK. Um, it was August of 1978. Um, I, I want to say August 10th. At one point, I actually did look it up. Um, and I was just sitting in a hotel room. I was 15 years old. We were on this family trip to the UK. Um, we had you know, done the touristy bit and we were in our room and I think we just had dinner and there was not much. And I was the equivalent of sh- channel surfing in those days, which I believe there were only three channels or might've been four. I can't remember if channel four existed yet, but I happened to tune in BBC one and I was a big science fiction fan. My, Fandom really started with Star Trek back in the early 70s. And my parents actually, you know, when I was a kid, a uh, toddler, I used to watch Star Trek in prime time with my mom and dad and um, also Twilight Zone and reruns, etc. And I became like a hardcore Trekkie around 72, 73, just sort of found that on my own. So, I, And I read a lot of books. I love science fiction. And I just happened to be changing the channel. I guess it was like 7 o'clock at night. Suddenly I see this weird... Thing with this uh telephone box landing and this odd guy with curly hair and a, and a floppy hat and a long scarf and a woman who's you know barely dressed in basically a leather bikini and a robot dog and i was like what is this and they started talking about like you know the planets and they, they were on the moon so the first episode that i saw was episode one of the Sunmakers and it just grabbed me immediately i got the you know the whole sat political satire tax satire fell madly in love. I didn't know if I was ever going to see it again. And it's weird because I was, I've been an Anglophile since I was very small, huge Beatles fan, huge British music fan also i grew up kind of on um a lot of you know masterpiece theater and a lot of other oddball like bbc shows Britcoms, and somehow i'd never heard of dr who before so i had no idea what this was that i was watching but i knew i needed to see more and as luck would have it um and actually they talk about it in, in red white and who um that there was a whole package deal that went on uh with time life that sold it to syndicated stations as well as um some public broadcasting broadcasting station. so um in october i think of that year um doctor who and a bunch of other package shows showed up on wor which uh used to be uh syndicated uh independent station and from new jersey um now i think they're uh sub channel or something else. But in those days they're independent and they bought this package. And Doctor Who was on with commercials um, and was started with robot. We went from robot through um, invasion of time for like the next three years. And if I remember correctly, originally it was on in the evenings and then they switched it to Saturday mornings. And I remember because my senior year of high school, I would get up and I would be watching Doctor Who before I had to go for my driving lesson. So I could work on getting my driver's license <laughs> my student driver stuff so um and then i moved to chicago i went to northwestern as, for college so um i went there in october of 1980 and they were showing doctor who on sunday nights after masterpiece theater and they showed it in the movie format so all of a sudden we weren't getting the cliffhangers i was shocked because i'd never seen it without commercials before and um i think by 1981 um, yeah, it was fall of 1981. I came back to school. They've been home for the summer and they were actually showing the key to time because Chicago got new episodes before New York did. And um, that stood out to me because the first new episode I saw out of the, the first three years of Baker uh, happened to be The Power of Crawl. And so that's sort of, it's a terrible episode, but it's something that means a lot to me because I suddenly was like hanging out at my friend's apartment, um, having come back and just the whole like our little science fiction group was all sitting around trying to figure out what in God's name was going on and making fun of the Swampies and Kroll, et cetera. So that was my second intro to that. And um, I've been a fan ever since. (laughs) Crow, ah! crow! 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 Crow rose from the deep to protect us, his people! Let us give thanks to Crow!
0: Can you still do the Crowl dance, which goes something like Dum-dum-dum-dum? Oh yeah. In fact, we, we sort of rewrote it. A friend
1: of mine actually did where they, you know, the the standing with the spears and great crawl, mighty crawl. So it became great crawl, mighty crawl, badass mofo crawl, and so on. We used to do this at cons in unison, just out of nowhere because we were a bunch of like obnoxious college students who did these things. So yeah, I, I can still do it, I think. Um, and it's, to this day, it's still, you know, the fact that the Swampies were like, Green, painted green Rastafarians was just like kind of very weird to me. And the lead the lead swampy was John Abeneri, who was on Robin of Sherwood, which is one of my other like big fandoms in the nineties. So
0: I'm a big fan of John Abeneri because he is the only Doctor Who actor to cross over into the Godfather universe. That I did not know. That is a little enough. Fa- Although when, Ma- when Francis Ford Coppola, I was going to say um, Mario Puzo, when Francis Ford Coppola recut the movie, um, episode three during the pandemic, into the Godfather Coda, he removed John Abenary's one scene and one line of dialogue. So that Doctor Who connection no longer exists. Oh no, that's terrible. I once in the early 90s wrote a bit of fanfic, which thankfully has been lost to the ages, where I decided to imply that Don Corleone was a past incarnation of the Doctor, which is a terrible idea for many reasons, but when you're writing fanfic and you're in the zone, you can do that kind of thing. Fortunately, Stephen Moffat did not pick up on it.
1: <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh, there's, I, you know, there's a lot of crackfic out there, so I'm sure that's not the worst idea I've ever had.
0: You are correct. It was August the 10th. It was the rerun because Sunmakers yeah. originally aired November December 1977 which is ahead of us we are only up to April 199 we're only up to April 1977 I should say in the world of the novelizations but Sunmakers airs a few months after today's book comes out and then the rerun was August episode 1 in the reruns achieved ratings of 3.2 million viewers so you were one of the 3.2 million Wow. I mean, but that
1: that's an odd trip for me because for some reason, I it was like a nexus of like so many things that became important to me. I've kind of joked about it, but it's like I discovered Doctor Who. I discovered the band The Who because Who Are You came out that week. I discovered Kate Bush and the Boomtown Rats because they both had like hits on the, the record charts and I listened to the radio a lot. And it was just like this weird amalgam of like all these things that would go on to to, to make my life worthwhile. <laughs> but probably Doctor Who's the biggest since, you know, now I write stuff about it
0: occasionally. Kate Bush has been very big this week because one of her songs was reused on Stranger Things on Netflix. So Oh yeah.
1: It's, it's I've been Kate Bush fandom is kind of going crazy because I think her, her, the album went back into the charts and, and it's now like the highest it's ever charted anywhere in, in the world, even though it was a huge deal in 1985. Um, and the, I think the song is like still number one on Spotify or it may have dropped to number two now because of BTS or some like K-pop band. But it's been amazing. And I kind of laugh because it's one of those things where that's probably it's not my least favorite song, but it's not in my like top 10. And it's kind of like, you know, people like, oh, my God, I love Kate Bush. I love the song. You know, it's like the only song that they know, except maybe Wuthering Heights. And it'd be like saying, oh, well, you know, I, I love the Beatles, you know, and only knowing I want to hold your hand and like, hey, Jude. So there's a lot, of, a lot more Kate Bush that people should be into. So
0: there was, there was a fan theory in the early '90s, which was always put forward in jest. There was a fan theory that Kate Bush wrote Kinda, but that, of course, is not remotely true. Unfortunately,
1: I never heard that, but that's actually kind of a cool one.
0: <laughs> it was a jokey fan theory. It was, it was, it was meant to not be true, but it it does fit in a certain point of view.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: So speaking of things that are new in the world of Doctor Who this week, um, as opposed to Kate Bush and Stranger Things, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, there has been a major casting revelation for the special that Russell T. Davis is filming right now in Wales, and that would be the introduction of well-known, long-time American actor Neil Patrick Harris into the Doctor Who universe. And what is your take on this a bit of uh, America-friendly casting news?
1: I'm actually I'm I'm not shocked by it because I don't know if you've seen it's a sin, which was um, Russell's uh, incredibly incredibly moving drama about um, the AIDS crisis in the UK in the '80s. Um, if you're in the, if you have HBO Max, it's on HBO Max. I highly highly recommend it. Have several boxes of tissues, but it's beautiful. And actually, Neil Patrick Harris is in that, and he's playing a British character in there where he's he's a from what I remember, he's like the older gentleman friend of one of the the kids in the story. Um, so, and, you know, Russell tends to like to recast people that he's worked with already. He likes to bring them into other things. And considering like Neil's married, he's got like two young kids. I think they're probably Doctor Who fans. He may be a Doctor Who fan on his own because he's not, he's maybe a little bit younger than I am. I think he's, I think he's in your age range, Jason, but I'm not sure. Um, so he's the right age to have been into it. And um, from what little I've seen, and actually they're filming filming in Bristol right now, not in, in Wales. Um, oh. They're on the streets of Bristol. And a friend of mine actually was complaining because she's doing a research project up in Edinburgh. She's from Alabama. But she was in Bristol going and got her master's at the University of Bristol. And I guess they're filming right down the street from her old flat. So she's just heartbroken that she can't get down there. Um, but... Um, it looks like they're utilizing, you know, Neil's strengths because he's a Broadway actor. He's a song and dance guy. He was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch on Broadway and a lot of other stuff. So it looks like there may be some, I don't think they're doing a musical episode, but I think there's going to be some song and dance stuff going on, you know, because it just from the little videos that I've seen, just like the movements, et cetera, he seems to be kind of spry and not just sort of playing a, a serious, like, dramatic part. He's not, like, playing, you know, a serious, like, the Master. I don't, I don't know if he's playing the Master. I don't think he's playing the Master. But if it is the Master, the Master has suddenly, you know, been channeling Fred Astaire and or the uh, the MC from Cabaret.
0: So. <laughs> uh, there's a Doctor Who crossover for you. I, I yeah. try to avoid spoilers. I don't mind learning things that the BBC themselves or the showrunner himself is publicizing. So I don't mind knowing that there's going to be a Jadoon, in Fugitive of the Jadoon, or I don't mind learning that there's going to be Cybermen in Dark Water. I just don't want to know any non-public spoilers. So it is kind of obvious who Neil Patrick Harris is meant to be playing, based on some of the set photos that have been released. So I don't mind knowing that much, but I also don't want to get too deep into it, because I would like to be as surprised as possible when the episode itself airs.
1: Yeah, I tend to live for spoilers. I'm actually an administrator on um, Gallifrey base. And one of my areas of expertise is the spoiler area. But honestly, Russell is doing a really good job of messing with everybody, confusing everybody, and yet not letting anything major out. I mean, you know, other than some minor things. And and honestly, it's just everything that we've seen from uh, that I've seen from set photos and set videos and you know people reporting on stuff that they've seen in public none of it makes sense i mean in in a good way it's just it's absolutely bonkers and i think russell must be sitting at home like you know reading gallifrey base and reading you know the internet and giggling because nobody really knows what he's doing at least fans wise nobody really knows what's going on here which is really cool I mean, i've been kind of joking that you know obviously they're just doing a a recast of cabaret because there are official photos, including in Russell's own uh, Instagram of uh, Neil Patrick Harris. in it's, he's in wearing a tux and tails um, and top hat. And he's wearing very MC ish kind of, you know, very like Berlin ish from the 1920s makeup. Um, You know, not just like set makeup, but obviously very kind of Joel gray from cabaret look. So it'll be interesting to see what he's actually doing, because I have no idea, but he looks great. So we'll find out. Because um, like I said, Russell probably is sitting at home, like just cackling like a madman, trying to, you know, seeing people trying to suss out what he's doing. And I'm sure they're way off the mark. So um, I wasn't, it's funny because I wasn't excited about these upcoming specials, special, whatever it is, um, because, you know, I don't, I, I'm not longing for the, the, you know the halcyon days of 2008 uh particularly but between the director being richard talale um neil patrick harris being involved and some of the other bonkers stuff that i'm seeing going on i'm suddenly like more intrigued especially since i'm getting the vibe from based on like clothing and props and stuff that this is not our this is not our regular 10 and this is not a regular donna um and so we'll see where this goes. But as long as it's not like specifically, oh, this is a lost episode, you know, the lost story that we didn't do before, um, I'm good with it because I think there's a lot more that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. So, you know, damn you, Russell, you've got me interested when I swore I didn't care.
0: <laughs> yeah, that special breed of fan, and I use that term advisedly, that was demanding the show be given a quote unquote rest, i.e., canceled because they didn't like the Timeless Children. That breed of fan has mysteriously gone silent ever since the new casting news and the Neil Patrick Harris announcement broke. Yeah, well, the the, the new argument
1: is that you know, 2008 was the most popular Doctor Who was ever been, which is not quite true. And everybody loves Doc David Tennant, and everybody loves Ten, and everybody loves you know, Donna, and they're the greatest pairing ever, except maybe, you know, Ten and Rose, and therefore everybody has to be happy about this, and be thrilled that we're reliving 2008, and if you cared about anybody else, it doesn't matter, because none of them really count. It only counts up to, you know, the season two, three, and four, and maybe the specials, and considering my favorite era of New Who is really the Stephen Moffat years, and there are a lot of us out there, it's kind of, like, dismissive, and, you know, i am I'm fine with it, but if we're if this is for the 60th anniversary, I'm really hoping there's more up Russell's sleeve than just, like I said, a lost episode from 208. And now that he's, some of the other elements that seem to be coming in, including the character that Neil Patrick Harris may be playing, that intrigues me more because now we're tying in other stuff from the past and or things that have never been touched on before, uh, at least on the television me- medium. Um, but perhaps in other mediums. So um, I'm more interested now. Like I said, we'll see what happens. But I'm still holding out. Maybe we might get a Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi, you know, even if it's like a two-minute cameo. I just want to make sure the rest of, you know, knew who was represented. And I really do would like to see some of the older Doctors
0: as well. But we'll see what happens. The character that Neil Patrick Harris is thought to be playing was referenced in a season 12 or a series 12, I should say Jodie Whittaker episode. So that would not be totally out of the blue, but again, we will see as somebody once said, time will tell. It always does. Yeah. (laughs) Now, of course, for me, the golden age of doctor who is watching the show the weeknights at 7 PM on channel 21 back in 1985. And, Nothing is going to recapture that vibe unless uh, Ken Rosenblum comes out of retirement to go uh, do pledge drives for Doctor Who again. But that seems <laughs> unlikely. He's pretty busy now at uh, uh Toro Law School, so I don't think he's going to be uh, doing Doctor Who bumpers anytime soon. Yeah,
1: I I, I actually didn't watch channel it on Channel Twenty One until probably like 1987 ish because I was actually in grad school from um, in Syracuse, uh, New York. 1985 through 1980, uh, late 87. I I officially graduated in like January of 1988. Um, So I was mostly up there um, and I did not get very good television reception. So I didn't watch a lot of it up there until like my last year when I was actually in a university apartment and we finally were able to get cable TV. Um, So I missed a lot of like the Colin Baker and uh, Sylvester McCoy years because of that. And it seemed like no matter where I went in the country, it was always either we were starting with Robot again, or we were starting with a, a We episode, usually Spearheaded from Space. Or the other thing, that, when I moved around the country a lot, you know, doing doll shows and or um, just visiting people, nine times out of 10, the episode that was showing, if it was on, was uh, Talons of Wang Chiang. So my, my later, my last two doctors, um, I've actually only seen those episodes probably like once or twice. And I do, except for Vengeance on Varus and um, Remembrance of the Daleks and maybe one or two others, because I just kept moving around and it, I could never find it on. And when I was home in New York, I was then working full time in the city. So I was commuting and that included sometimes working on Saturdays. So I because I remember it moving to Saturdays because I remember watching Degrassi and then Doctor Who and then I think Blake seven may have been on around then, too. Um, So I I just sort of saw it in in bits and pieces. So um, that's why my my later classic series is all kind of fuzzy. It kind of drops off after like the first year of Peter.
0: I, I actually discovered Degrassi because it was on right before Doctor Who on Saturdays on Channel 21
1: yep that's when i started watching it too and actually i got really into the next generation later on um when it was on cable because i just kind of thought it was funny that you know these kids were like the kids of the kids that i re- remembered back in the day so even though it was way out of the demographic but it was like you know late night it would be on on uh, nick nick for kids or whatever teen nick and i would just like watch it because it was like good mindless soap operas
0: so No, uh, Caitlin from the original Degrassi is about right up there with uh, Sarah Jane Smith for me in terms of uh, female characters that I worshipped in the 1980s. That makes sense. Speaking of teens, Neil Patrick Harris is less than six months older than me. So I always say, if I become famous in less than six months, I will have caught up to him.
1: Excellent. I said I thought he was about in your age range because I know I'm about 10 years older than you. And I remember him like when... Doogie Hauser first started, and he seems so like tiny and, and funny. You know, he's not that much younger than I. Am.
0: <laughs> he is much better preserved than me. We'll, we'll just we'll just say that. So, when did you first discover, during your various Phantom journeys, the Target novelizations?
1: Um, probably when I was in, I it was either while well, I was still in high school and watching it on W R, or maybe early on. Um, and when I was in uh, at Northwestern um, and this is actually before I turned Jennifer Adams Kelly onto the show, because um, I remember picking them up, uh, probably the American versions of the novels. And just seeing the the forward by Harlan Ellison kind of like piqued my interest because if Harlan thought it was good, then it must be good. Um, and so I, I have some. It's kind of funny. I have like random uh, books. I don't have the whole series. I've never read them all. Um, I'm a bad fan that way because again, I was in college, I was moving around a lot. So I, I, again, I had friends who used to go to the local comic book shop and, you know, buy the import novels at great, great cost. And I was into a lot of other stuff. I was still into Star Trek. I was into like general science fiction, into a lot of fantasy, um, comic books. So I, I love Doctor Who, but it wasn't just my, my sole reason for fandom. Um, and, you know, being a cool college student, uh, I had, You know, it was too cool for me to be like just a single track fan, I guess. (laughs) So I've read them sort of, you know, piecemeal and I have some somewhere in a box upstairs in my room, but I don't even remember which ones I had. So, but it was usually, I think, things that were missing at the time. I know I have like Enemy of the World and um, a couple other things that things that have now finally shown up. And it's like, oh, my God, I remember reading this like 30 years ago or more. <laughs> this is so cool. I can finally see what the character looks like or the story looks like.
0: The target novelization spoiled it for me because I got into Trek a few years after I got into doctor who just through the reruns on channel 44, the PBS station out of Scranton Wilkesbury. Cause after they lost the doctor who license, they were showing two episodes back to back of star Trek, the original series in the old doctor who time slot late on right. Saturday night. I was going to say we got them
1: on cable here, too, because that was Caps Comic Cavalcade. Used to be That's their, right. Uh, used to be
0: their sponsor. That's right. Um, so I watched the entirety of TOS in high school, probably 10th and 11th grades, courtesy of uh, channel WVIA Channel 44, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Hazleton. But when I discovered the TOS novelizations by James Blish, I was disappointed that they were only short story adaptations that condensed the tale and did not go the full target which is to turn the story into a complete 120 what have you page book so right. because of the target novelizations i never got as into james blish as everybody else yeah see with
1: me like i said i started you know i was watching star trek in primetime um even though i was you know like 3 to 6 um and then got bitten by the bug probably when i was 9 or 10 so i was buying the Blish novels when I was in you know sixth seventh grade so I have the entire run of the Blish novels and didn't so Doctor Who came after for me so it was like cooler that the target novels were actually you know full novels of one single episode as compared to the Blish stuff but it didn't ruin it for me because I kind of like I guess I moved up in class (laughs) when it came to you know adaptations and then you know there were also a lot of like movie novels of the Star Wars stuff and Star Trek movies and this and that so it all kind of tied together
0: had you ever read the clause of axos novelization before i asked you to read it for this show
1: i honestly don't think i have i'm not sure but um i said i think the the target novels that i had and i read I, you know a lot of them were the tom baker things things that i already liked and then i sort of was gravitating towards the second doctor i think you know i said things that were sort of missing so if i'd seen the story on tv then i kind of left it alone and went to you know earlier stuff or things that were really difficult to find and also just you know this is going to be blasphemous but the third doctor is not my favorite doctor so i probably didn't just on that point alone i don't hate him i mean there's no doctor that i dislike but i have my favorites and pertwee is kind of like on the bottom of the the of pole there
0: so before I ask whether or not you like the book, having read it for the first time, what was your impression of Claus of Axos, the story, uh, going into this re- going into this reading?
1: Um, I didn't dislike it. Like I so, said, you know, there's certain it's funny, I like I said, I'm not crazy about Third Doctor, but I think he's got like three of the best companions that ever were. I mean Sarah Jane is like up there in my Pantheon, um, because you know, she was the, the second companion I ever had you know encountered and really she was the main one because i only saw the one episode with leela until you know we, we went over after two seasons of it um but i love joe grant too and i love unit so um i i like the story i thought it was kind of fun um again blasphemy but i got really tired of like the doctor versus the master and the same thing in the fifth doctor's uh tenure i just like he seemed to pop up he was to me he's annoying um, and overuse, so yeah, it's yet another master sh- story that's nice, you know, but I, I thought the the concept was interesting, and I kind of liked more the unit and the, the Joe stuff in there, so like I said, I, I know I'm, you know, you'll probably get hate letters, you know, because <laughs> I'm not in the status quo here.
0: This is an episode from the season where Roger Delgado was a series regular and was in five straight stories in a row, and I know that a lot of fans have, it. well, I say a lot, I know there are some vocal fans who have a problem with that. Now, in retrospect, I think it works very well when you're watching the show in sequence. Because Roger Delgado is so good, you want to have as much of him as possible. But, of course, that had an effect on his career, and they've never tried that again, where the Master does every single episode in a season. I think it's a good experiment, and I think yeah. because of Roger Delgado, it works. I don't think Clause of Axos is the best of that particular season, but I think Delgado is very good in it.
1: Yeah. I, at least he's got something, you know, more interesting to do. I mean, I, I just wrote a piece and I'm going to plug another book that I'm in that's actually coming out in November, which is the world of demons, the villains of Dr. Who, which is Fayette mafia, uh, Fayetteville mafia press. Um, and it's actually, I, it'll be available at conventions. I are hoping to get it out by Eli who and probably Chicago TARDIS. Um, and it's also, I'm looking right now on the Barnes and Noble page and it's there too. And I just wrote a, an entire piece on, um, it's Zygons and Sea Devils and Silurians and Santarans. So I had to watch the Sea Devils and I had to watch um, the Silurians and basically anything and, and everything that had one of those four uh, races in it. And I, I you know, the master feels more organic it feels like he fits into more of this than let's say the sea devils which was just like a rehash and the silurians only you know with extra you know special guest villain the master and <laughs> just like he felt really kind of shoehorned in there you know he was shoehorned in there or the sea devils were shoe- shoehorned in there and we didn't need both at the same time whereas this him working you know with and against the ax uh axos actually worked for me because i thought it was kind of cool that he was like playing both sides and et cetera. so yeah, he worked much better here.
0: So what was your impression of the novelization, having read it now for the first time, as compared to the TV episode?
1: Um, I really liked it. Um, I enjoyed it, and I do like the way Terrence sticks writes overall. I mean, I remember when I was reading the novels, he tended to be my favorite novelist. Um, it was interesting because I'm also a writer and um, I, I mostly not, I'm published nonfiction. I have a couple of fiction things that were published, and a couple of years ago there was a big thing you know the internet in terms of rules of like things you are never supposed to do that i had always done in my writing slash and my fan fiction um which was actually to use adverbs to um you know switch points of view um within a scene because you're an omniscient author um and if you and use other words besides besides just asked and said and um Dix does all of that. And, you know, I was kind of vindicated because I was thinking of a lot of people, especially fan fiction writers who had these rules and things that you did to be a good writer. And their heads would explode because, you know, it was all these things you were never, ever supposed to do. And here's Terence Dix, who, you know, like wrote a million Doctor Who novels and, you know, was published author and, and television writer, etc. And he like broke every single one of them. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought there was a lot of good uh, characterization in there. Um, I think we got more characterization than we did in the show, even like with Filer, Um, a little bit more of like what the axo- Axos axons were thinking and doing. Um, and if I had only read the novel and not seen this, the show, I would have been terribly, terribly disappointed in what the axons actually looked like. Because the way they're described in the book makes, you know, they sound gorgeous, you know, these golden, like, godlike creatures. And then we get to the TV show and there are people, you know, in in unitards with zippers up the back and these, like, weird, funky gold clay masks. So (laughs) the book reads really well. I I think I like the story better in the book than I did on on television. And I did actually rewatch the episode this week, the story this week, too, just to sort of catch up on it.
0: He makes very good use of the mind's eye, and of course, I'll go into this a little bit later on this program, but he expands scenes. He is able to incorporate material that they wanted to film but didn't have time for because the scripts were so long and the time slot was so short. He also is able to put the focus on supporting characters who were supposed to be more important than they were, and he's able to distract you from some of the Uh, Less than happily aged special effects work. So Terrence is telling the heart of the story, which kind of gets lost on TV amidst all the spectacle and special effects and the color separation overlay.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think he really got into, you know, the heart of the matter, whether it was, um, Chin, who was, you know, the, the bureaucrat, or whether it was, um, Harker, who was the captain, who, uh, was Tim Piggott Smith, which I didn't, I knew he was in Mask of Mandragora. In fact, I just wrote uh, an essay that's coming up in one of the upcoming outside in books, um, for that but i didn't know he was in this so that was kind of a nice surprise um you know as i said filer and even the axons themselves you kind of get a little bit more of like what they're doing and then you know the doctor and the master and how they're sort of sort of kind of playing each other and joe's reaction even more so to everything that, that she's experiencing and everything that's going around so i i liked it from that you know because you do get much more into the characters and not just action 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 this you know special effect action on screen
0: Terrence also builds a lot more into the emotion of, is the Doctor really going to betray his unit friends? Is he really going to betray Joe Grant? Terrence has the space in the book to lean into that in the way they didn't have the space to lean into it on TV.
1: Right. I mean, you you sort of get a hint of it because Joe seems to, on screen, seems to think this was happening. But, yeah, you get a much more like how she's reacting and how you know the brigadier is reacting and you know can we trust the doctor is he just going to ditch us so he can finally get his TARDIS working etc cetera, etc cetera. so I, I thought that was really like a nice touch
0: so would you recommend this book to others as a very good example of what the target line can do and how they can improve upon the underlying tv story
1: i definitely would i mean i, I think that it's, it, it was very well done and it brought me in. I got more out of the book than I did at, even having watched the episode again in terms of what was going on and, and again, motivations and thoughts. So I definitely would be one that I would recommend.
0: And you mentioned outside in a few minutes ago, you and I of course have both been regulars in the first decades worth of outside and publications from ATB. I think ATB also put out uh, Red, White and Who, but what are the most recent outside ins that you are in because i know a new book is coming out that you are in and i am not
1: yeah um i'm in the next two that are coming out i'm definitely in um, the one that's coming out this august i believe it's august 28th is outside in fire walks with me uh which is um, the shortest book ever i believe there's 55 authors involved and it's all twin peaks both the old series the new series films and uh, according to the press release from uh atb publishing apparently there's some surprises in there too and so i did a piece on the uh re the revival series um episode seven part seven there's a body all right is the title and uh, my piece is actually uh a character piece from the point of view of diane um, played by brilliantly by laura dern um which i don't remember exactly i believe the title is anger is an energy but i'm not sure about that but i could look it up <laughs> <I'm lazy. laughs> but yeah i'm in that one and then there's another one coming out after that which i believe is there's a i'm not sure what the actual title is but it's going to be um the the first book the volume one which was all classic doctor who remixed um so for this one it did mask of mandra Mandur- Yeah. mask of mandraga um and that's actually a, a weird like multi-part quiz um sort of like a bu- buzzfeed type quiz <laughs>
0: Having never seen any Twin Peaks, not when it first came out in the 90s and having not seen the revival, I opted to sit this one out, so it is the first outside-in volume that I am not in, but I am rejoining the outside-in remix of the classic Doctor Who, so I will be covering a black-and-white story a little bit earlier than Mask of Mandragora, but I will be back in the outside-in series for that book, so fear not.
1: At least she'll be back. And then the next two past that are Deep Space Nine and Babylon Five, and I will definitely be in both of those also. I already have my episodes staked out. In fact, I have to talk to Stacy, um, Stacy Question Mark Smith, who's our editor. Um, I'm going to be talking to her next week to try to get my DS9 piece in shape because I i can't quite glom what I'm doing on that. I know which episode I'm doing and I have some ideas, but sometimes she's really good at just like bouncing ideas and finding the right path for it. So.
0: I have picked out my stories for the Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine volumes, but have not written them yet. But I will be speaking to Stacy on this program again very soon, so uh, we'll have a chance to uh, finalize that. So, Jay, what I want to do now is play a game with you, and we are going to play a game of 20 questions. Are you ready? I am ready. So, I have selected using the randomizer.net one and only one doctor who story from 1963 up through 2022 i know which story it is you will have to guess it is a serial and you have to use your 20 questions to guess which one story it is the all-time record is seven nobody has failed the game yet let's see how you do go ahead is it a story from the 60s 1960s it is not a story from the 1960s. Question two. Is it a story from the 1970s? No. Question three.
1: Is it a story from the 80s?
0: No. Question four.
1: Okay, so that, I'm just like me thinking out loud here. This actually makes it maybe easier. Um, hmm. Is this a story under Russell T. Davis's uh, Aegis? No, it is not. Question five. Is this a story under the Moffat ages?
0: Yes, it is. So uh, now you've narrowed it down. I've just got to pick which one it is. Question six. Is it a Twelfth Doctor story? Yes, it is.
1: Is Clara the companion? No. Question eight.
0: Is Bill the companion? Yes, she is. Question nine. Is it a three-part story? No, it is not. Question 10. Is it a finale story? No, question 11.
1: Oh, I'm <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Um,
0: was it written by Stephen Moffat? No, it is not a Stephen Moffat story. I think we're up now to question 12, so we're coming into the homestretch. Is it set on Mars? It is not set on Mars. Question 13. Is it set in the past? It is not. Question 14. I think the good news is now you are guaranteed to solve the puzzle in time because there are fewer stories remaining in the season than there are questions left out of 20. Right, but it wasn't... Oh, oh, um... Is David Suchet in the episode? No, David Suchet is not in the episode. Question 15. Is it oxygen? It is not oxygen.
1: (laughs) I else it could be. There's nothing left. Um, it's not set in the past. It's not set on Mars. It's not written by Moffat. Is it set in the future? Yes, it is. Is it Smile?
0: Yes, it is.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> it's like the one that was blanking on. Oh.
0: I will say that when it came up on the randomizer, I didn't remember it. <laughs> so... Oh, I
1: remember we we saw that actually it was at one of the Li whatevers, the, the ones that aren't the Li Who, because um, it was on at that point. And I remember I was in a room like watching it with a big group of people,
0: and it's a really good story. But for some reason, I was blanking on it. I was exactly. <laughs> well, you you got there, you got it. I think in eighteen, so you beat the quiz and you are a winner, Jan. Thank you so much for playing. Where You're can welcome. where can we find you online if we so choose?
1: Okay, you can find me on Instagram as total underscore janarchy or on Facebook as uh, um, under my name Jan F E N N I C K. Effie um, I really do need to set up a new Twitter so I can maybe talk to people, but that's a little dicey right now. Um, and uh, or email I am janarchy at gmail.com if anybody needs to drop a line. So,
0: and you of course have several books uh, coming out that you are in. Do you have any other things that you wish to plug?
1: There is another uh, Long Island uh, Who, Eli, Who coming up this November, and our guests are going to be Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, and um, several writers, and probably more good stuff coming up. Um, uh, trying to think what else I've got going on. Um, like I said, the other book that I'm in, and let me get you the official title again look it up on my phone. Um, it is A World of Demons colon the villains of doctor who and the editors are barnaby edwards um the non Dalek barnaby barnaby edwards and david bushman and that's fate bill mafia press and we will definitely be at li who i believe they'll be at chicago tardis and um you can also find it I, i'm assuming on amazon i know it's on uh, barnes and noble etc and it's a really cool book because um it's focusing on all the 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 villains of the series with like each dedicated uh, essay on different aspects and different, I know somebody's doing the master Uh, friend of mine did a piece on uh, the invisible monsters of the new series. I did sort of a compare and contrast um, of four different races and, you know, how they were in the classic series versus how they are now. And um, it seems like it's going to be a really good book. So uh, I've got that one coming up. And as I said, Twin Peaks Um, outside in uh, Firewalks with me is coming out in august and i'm not sure when the next outside in doctor who book is coming out um but i'm assuming that'll be in the next couple of months and i think that's about it right now that i can talk about
0: and of course i am going to be at or i'm planning to be on li who in november as well and we're planning on doing a trap one on warriors of the deep which i have not been able to schedule yet but you are definitely going to be on that panel with me on trap one if i'm able to put that together
1: Excellent. I mean, as I said, I, I had to watch every single Zygon, every Zygon stories weren't so bad, but every single Silurian, Sea Devil, and Santaran episode there was from the beginning of time to last week. So <laughs> I definitely
0: have opinions on Warriors of the Deep. I look forward to hearing them and that'll be on Trap One hopefully in the not too distant future. Janet, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great night. Okay, you too, Jason. Doctor Who and the Clause of Axos, written by Terence Dix, televised as the Clause of Axos, teleplay by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, televised in March and April 1971, published in April 1977. Axos calling Earth, Axos calling Earth. The creatures stood before them, beautiful golden humanoids, offering friendship and their priceless axonite in return for what? Only Doctor Who remains suspicious. What is the real reason for the Axon's sudden arrival on Earth? Then why is the evil master a passenger on their spaceship? He very soon finds out. The first sentences of the Clause of Axos novelization are not as spectacular or memorable as the first sentences of the Dalek Invasion of Earth novelization, as we discussed here last week during Episode 30. But it is a great picture for the mind's eye, superior to the state-of-the-1971 special effects art that we saw on television. Quote, it moved through the silent blackness of deep space like a giant jellyfish through the depths of the sea. Its shape was constantly changing, pulsating with energy and life, and a myriad of colors flickered over its glistening surface. As you can learn from the DVD production notes, or from Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Brief History of Time Travel website, or anywhere else that recounts the history of Doctor Who, Claws of Axos on TV had a troubled genesis. Bob Baker and Dave Martin, the Bristol Boys, came to the Doctor Who production offices by accident via a misrooted, non-science fiction script. What about them appeal to Barry Letts and Terrence Dicks? It can be hard to tell watching the original TV serial, but the novelization makes it clear. This is a highly political story with satiric elements. And Terrence Dix loves his politics. The first two Brigadier POV paragraphs on page 9, just the third page of the book, say it all. This is not a story about alien parasites or goateed time-traveling renegades. It's a story about the perils of homegrown nationalism, the make Britain great again crowd. This is a story about Horatio Chin. Page 9. In the military and scientific complex that formed unit headquarters, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart's day was getting off to a very bad start. The cause of his present troubles was not alien monsters, but earthbound bureaucrats. Whitehall's latest brainchild was the newly created Ministry of Security, an organization designed to gather all Britain's various intelligence organizations under one central umbrella. The brigadier had refused to be gathered, taking the position that UNIT was not a national, but an international organization, and as such answerable only to UNIT HQ in Geneva. The war of letters, memos, and reports had continued for some time now, with the brigadier more than holding his own. But now the Whitehall enemy had wearied of the paper bombardment, and sent in their shock troops, in the stocky and unattractive shape of Horatio Chin. Like many small men in high positions, Chin liked to think of himself as Napoleonic. He saw himself as a hard-driving human dynamo, cutting through the restraints of red tape. He was a vain and rather stupid man, but he was also ruthlessly ambitious and tirelessly energetic. Chin eventually overcame most of his opponents by wearing them down. He had even worn down the minister in charge of his own department, who couldn't stand the man but couldn't think how to get rid of him. Wily old politician that he was, the minister had been struck by a sudden brainwave. He had two main problems at the moment, Chin and the Brigadier. Why not turn them loose on each other? There's more, of course, but there's already a full-length audiobook adaptation of this novelization, narrated by Richard Franklin, whose voice is slightly more pleasant than mine. Though, having heard Mr. Franklin wax rhapsodic about Donald Trump at Elihu in November 2016, a few days after the election, I'm wondering if he was perhaps the best choice to narrate this particular tale. But there are plenty of more acidic asides and jokes about government bureaucrats, like the brigadier imagining Chin's execution and deciding that a last memo would be more appropriate than a last cigarette. Another element to Claude's troubled genesis is that the script went through many drafts, and Terence Dix evidently wrote the final one himself, under his usual axiom that any more than three drafts of a script by the original author was only going to make things worse. Claus thus moves along at a breakneck pace on TV, for 1971, with lots of short scenes and a choppy feel. This is because lots of material got trimmed. Thanks to the electronic miracle of DVDs and Blu-rays, you can now watch an excerpt of the raw studio footage of episode one under the wonderful title, The Vampire from Space, on the original DVD, or even the entire studio session for Episode 1 on the Season 8 Blu-ray. My copy of the Blu-ray is autographed by Katie Manning. How about yours? And you can see what material was filmed, but didn't make it to air. But this is, for Terrence, a 135-page book, his second quote-unquote long book in a row, and coming out just a month after the 136-page Dalek Invasion of Earth book so this tale has room to breathe. and we get a proper introduction for American spy Bill Filer, who on TV played by a decidedly non-American Paul Grist, and who in the book is described as having a, quote, pleasantly ugly face. It's also the second time in the first five pages of the book that someone observes that Joe Grant looks too young to be in intelligence work. Now, it's easy to fall into hyperbole, and some would say that I do it every week, but I have to rank the first chapter of the Axos novelization as among Terence's best work. Now, again, I say this almost every week, but consider this. This is an 11-page chapter. Terence has to introduce several characters. The Doctor, Joe, the Brigadier, Chin, Bill Filer, Mike Yates, and two British radar technicians, one of whom has a rich internal fantasy life, Ransom's Comet is a memorable part of Chapter 1, but is not mentioned on TV. And Terence, in the middle of the continuity have a unit era, has to briefly recap Spearhead from Space, and Terror of the Autons, and The Mind of Evil, which won't even be novelized for nearly another decade, even though it's terrific. And Terence has to foreshadow the threat of the Master, who's not even a proper character in the book until Chapter 4. And he has to set up all the political satire, the comedy, and the fencing. Quote, Bill Filer edged into the room, wondering how he'd ever got the impression that the British were calm and reserved. And all this in just 11 pages. All of that material without a single wasted sentence. Now compare this, for example, to the 1994 Doctor Who new adventure novel, Fall of the Shadow, where the seventh doctor spends literally 100 pages just standing in the same spot. Now, Fall of the Shadow was not a bad book, but it's not Terrence Dicks either. I'm not going to go too heavily this time into the changes between screen and book, but they're the usual changes you've come to expect if you've been following me along on this book journey for the past seven months or so. Chapter 2 is a good example of Terrence unentangling a lot of intercut scenes on TV. Pigbin Josh is in about four separate scenes on TV, muttering but not speaking, played by regular Havoc stuntman Derek Ware, that's all condensed to a single scene in the book, with the character now called Old Josh taking up parts of four pages. The line born of necessity on the day of studio taping about freak weather conditions is absent from the book, as is Corporal Bell, who was making her final TV appearance, but in the event is not in the book at all. There is more of Terrence's dry comedy. Chin is given a, quote, Napoleonic streak although that's the second time in two chapters that Terence calls him Napoleonic. And old Josh, quote, "...was so intent on turning his experience into profit, it didn't occur to him that the object might have plans of its own." The book's political leanings are also explored, as we learn about the Newton power complex through the brigadier's eyes. So many Let's Ear a Doctor Who stories involve British attempts at energy independence ending in disaster. Newton is described as, quoting the vital first step in Britain's use of atomic power for domestic and industrial supply. From one enormous nuclear reactor, Terence continues, power was channeled to outlets all over the country. The fact that of all possible sites, the thing had plunked itself down beside the Newton reactor seems suspicious in the extreme, he says, of the Axon spaceship. In short, the plot of Axos makes a lot more sense in the book than on TV where it's arguably lost in between hammy acting performances, Dayglo and cso interiors, and awkward jumps between scenes. Michael Ferguson was one of Doctor Who's most visually inventive directors between War Machines and the stone-cold classic Ambassadors of Death, but this story's visuals strained his genius. Terrence in the book, of course, can ignore all that and just get right to the heart of the matters. Now, While there are some novelizations that fundamentally alter the TV story into something unrecognizable, telling an almost entirely new story utilizing the same basic characters from TV, we saw this much earlier in the line with David Whitaker's two 1960s books or Malcolm Hulk's novelizations, most of which are sadly in the rearview mirror on this program, although we'll see them again in the mid-to-late 80s, many, many months from now, when we reach the likes of The Massacre or The Romans. Now, Terence is not doing any of that wholesale reinvention. He is giving a faithful accounting of the TV dialogue and scenes, albeit, of course, with the minor changes to lines or scene order that I've already talked about. Where the literature of Terence Dix comes in, and the reason why I dig so deep into the text of the books and spend so much time discussing even the minor changes, is the gloss that he puts on the story. He is constantly at work, constantly, exploring why things happen the way they do on TV. He fills in the margins, hence all that strenuous work in Chapter 1, introducing Chin. In Chapter 3, Terence gets into the Doctor's alien nature. The Doctor is annoyed at Windsor for wanting to double-check his readings, wishing the unit troops would go away, let him explore the Axon spaceship in peace, and why Joe, who has an entirely silent subplot on episode one that's concentrated into chapter three of the book, is given many POV thoughts about how Yates and Benton are treating her like a child, or how she can explore the rest of the Axon spaceship before the doctor has a chance. Or the way the brigadier realizes that the Doctor is trying to outthink Axos, even before they're exposed as malignant, by pointing out inconsistencies in their cover story. Chin is quoted as glaring reproachfully at the Doctor indicating that the doctor's skepticism was in thoroughly bad taste. Terence always wants to put you half a step ahead of the regulars, so that the doctor's eventual logical leaps never take the reader by surprise, and he always, always wants to get a half-smile out of the reader at these sometimes ludicrous situations in which our heroes find themselves. Here's an example, page 40, POV to Nicholas Courtney. The scene was at once mysterious and absurd, thought the brigadier, There they all stood in the mysterious horror of this glowing spacecraft, confronting these golden-skinned, smooth-tongued Axons and their pet Toad. Terence reworks the part one cliffhanger, end of chapter three, to take the focus away from the fantastic, away from the double cliffhanger that on TV is the surprise appearance of the Master and the shock reveal of the Axos creature's true form, Those of us who are reading the books in publication order, of course, have already seen the same prop, spray-painted green, used as the crinoid back in Doctor Who and the Seeds of Doom, episode 29. Instead, Terence replaces that with a long argument involving the Doctor and Chin, and the Brigadier, and Windsor, and Hardiman, over the true value of axonite, and whether or not it belongs just to England or to the entire world. This was presumably written but cut for timing from TV, but Terence puts it on pages 41 and 42 and moves the Master's appearance back to the Episode 2 material entirely, which is Chapter 4. On TV, your brain might be numbed by the visuals. In the book, your brain is stimulated by Terence turning the story back to human greed, talking about the Trojan horse, and including a healthy dose of political debate. Chapter 4 again puts the focus on Chin, whose cabinet minister is described as having a face, quote, rather like a cunning old bloodhound. When Chin exits the Axon ship in order to gain government approval to seize Axonite for the UK, the doctor in the book, quote, thought hard. It was easy to deduce Chin's next move, which meant he must make some adjustments of his own. When the doctor then compares Axonite to the Trojan horse, Terence nimbly slips into Joe's POV to help us remember what the Trojan horse is. Alas, Terence misses the chance here to get in a shout-out to the myth-makers, just as he also fails to compare Joe's aging to death at the end of Chapter 7 to the sad fate of Sarah Kingdom at the end of the Dalek's master plan. But again, Terence had not been around for those Hartnell Era stories. Terence also lets slip that Windsor is after Axonite in order to win a Nobel Prize, and has Joe directly observed, "...now she knew why the Doctor had suddenly changed his attitude." He didn't care whether Axonite would be good or bad for humanity. He wanted it for himself! Exclamation point. Now we're suddenly in heist movie territory, where everyone's out to double-cross everyone else, and Terrence is here for it. These internal thoughts do come with the expense of Chin's very funny two-scene confrontation on TV with the minister, which is shorter in the book and only one scene long. Minister, will you scramble?
1: or right, slice, sir? Just your report, Chin. that will be quite garbled enough.
0: Yes, sir. Well, as I anticipated, we are having a certain amount of trouble with these unit people, sir. We, Chin? We? Uh, Well, I am, sir. Are you quite sure you can handle this matter, Chin? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, of course. Uh, About the special powers, sir. Because
1: if you are not, just remember, it's your
0: head on the block, Chin, not mine. Yes, well, I think we ought to look to the future, too. There are tremendous advantages for humanity in Axonite.
1: Yes, but tremendous material advantages, but I doubt if even axonite could increase the growth of human common sense. But since you seem hell bent on getting hold of it, I suggest the best thing to do is restrict its use to your laboratories until we've made a full analysis of all its properties.
0: We? You mean you want to cooperate with us? Scientifically, yes. Windsor. Depends. On what? Who leads the investigation? Why, you do, of course. Uh, about my request, uh... special powers have already been granted. Do your best to keep me informed, old chap. After all, you are our man on the spot, Chin, in more
1: ways than one.
0: Minister. Right, Brigadier. Terence in chapter four also plays up the threat of the doctor switching sides earlier than on TV the Doctor is openly dismissive of Joe and the book, and leaves Joe wondering about his true loyalties. There's also a really nifty scene in Chapter 5, exclusive to the book, where the Doctor tricks Tim Pickett Smith's regular army captain character out of arresting him and Joe. On TV, the captain pays no attention to the Doctor and Joe at all, which is something of a plot hole, since he's under orders to arrest all unit personnel, and Joe in the book helpfully points out to the reader that she and the Doctor are unit personnel. And Terrence continues to add material, not on TV, where Joe despairs that the Doctor is more loyal to Axonite and its promises of time travel than he used to unit and to her. Quote, as Windsor and the Doctor moved off, Joe said sadly, so you have changed sides after all, Doctor. The Doctor paused in the doorway and gave her a benign smile. A matter of basic loyalties, my dear. I'm afraid mine must always be to science. On the top of page 65, Windsor discloses his secret plan to use his particle accelerator to travel in time. I wonder if Donald Belisario read this chapter, and if it formed some inspiration for the Quantum Leap Accelerator. In the book, the Doctor guesses Windsor's aim, much to Windsor's discomfort, 14 pages before Windsor himself starts quoting the Quantum Leap saga cell. In chapter 6, Terrence has the Doctor realize that the axon filer duplicate is a fake, because he's already had experience with alien duplicates, thanks to his encounters with the Autons. Page 72. Now, in the old days, the Target editors would have put a footnote in here, and there was, in fact, a footnote in the previous book, but I believe we're just about at the end of the Target novelization's footnote era, unfortunately. Terence also has tremendous fun writing from the Master's POV. Here's his mini-cliffhanger to end Chapter 6, the paragraph that usually ends episode two of a four part story, but here not the actual TV cliffhanger, rather a neat little moment of the master planning more mayhem. The master sat beside the driver, a satisfied smile playing on his lips. He found it very appropriate that the message which would mean the final doom of Earth had been sent from the heart of the organization dedicated to its protection. One bird had been killed, it had only remained to kill the other. When the TARDIS arrived at Newton, the doctor wouldn't be very far away. The master smiled and fingered the laser gun beneath his coat. The actual episode to Cliffhanger is held back to page 84, the few pages into chapter 7, and more than halfway into the book, and also makes a little more sense of Windsor's death, which is unclearly staged on TV, where he's electrocuted and seems to transform into an Axonite creature, whereas in the book he simply absorbed directly into Axonite and disappears forever. Another example of Terence clarifying the TV story and broadening out its political implications is on page 85, when he explains exactly how the Master's message, sent clandestinely from Unit HQ about Axonite, sparks a worldwide crisis and scandal against Chin's efforts to hoard Axonite for the UK. Once again, it's clear why Terrence commissioned the story, and spent so much effort working Baker and Martin's draft scripts into something resembling broadcast shape. Again, it's all about the political wrangling and backroom dealing, not about Dayglow Monsters or CSO. This is another prime example of how the novelizations can salvage the reputation of less-than-beloved TV serials, with Axos on the bottom half of the year 2014 DWM rankings. Page 97. Chin was left alone with his map. He was quite unaware that his efforts had brought considerably nearer the total destruction of Earth. In one area, well, two areas, directing and editing, there is slightly more fun to be had watching Access on TV than reading about it. In the book, Hardiman, the director of the nuclear power plant, asks the Master if the Doctor's TARDIS is really able to store the entire output of the complex. The master's response is fairly long and ends with a smooth scene transition. Oh yes, said the master gently. At least I hope so. It'll be just too bad for all of us if I'm wrong. He disappeared inside the TARDIS and closed the door. But on TV, the scene ends abruptly, in such a way as to generate humor. Back into this contract, why? Well,
1: theoretically, it should be able to store all the power generated around it like a solar cell you Are
0: trying to tell me you can absorb the total output of this complex in a police box? Yes. Even with material cut out, Terence still manages to get at what makes the Delgado Master the greatest master of all time, such as on page 107. Quote, the master switched on the TARDIS loudspeaker system and yelled, Risk the cables, man! Risk everything! We've got to! As his fingers flashed over the TARDIS console, the master was actually smiling. He liked a good crisis. In his own peculiar way, he was enjoying himself. The resolution to the Episode 3 cliffhanger, the first pages of Chapter 10, show two more very effective tricks in the Terran's toolbox. One is his liberal use of italicized phrases and ellipses to make important passages stand out on the page and invest tension in key moments. Naturally, these tricks don't quite work when your Brooklyn-accented host tries to use them in a podcast script, but they do propel along the narrative on the printed page. And then Terrence invests real emotion in the sacrificial death of a tertiary character. Sir George Hardiman barely registers on TV. He dies trying to connect or disconnect the reactor cables that Axos is trying to use to destroy the power plant, and his death barely goes remarked upon. Not in the book, though. In the book, Hardiman gets a memorable single-scene subplot. As he volunteers to disconnect the cable, he says, this is my responsibility. I'm a scientist, or I used to be. Terence dips into his head for the only time in the book, starting on the bottom of page 114. Hardiman pushed up the goggles to wipe the sweat from his eyes, replaced them, and went on with his task. It was a very long time since he had last had tools in his hands, but he worked calmly and steadily, with a curious feeling of contentment. Despite all the years and meetings and conferences, he could still do a real job when he had to. Like a man defusing a bomb, he unscrewed the last bolt and lifted the trigger section free. Gently, he lowered it to the floor. The master observes, only in the book, that Hardiman is carrying out his task, quote, surprisingly well, which is literally the only genuine compliment that the Roger Delgado master ever paid to any human. Otherwise, in the episode 4 material, scenes begin earlier and go out later, likely the residual of scenes that had to be topped and tailed on TV in order to fit the running time. The book has more explanatory dialogue and more insults. Mike Yates' bingo-calling reference, eyes down, look in, garners a Roger from the Brigadier on TV, but in the book gets a more surly, never mind the comedy, which I would like to think is Terrence editorializing. Terence also omits a televised reference to Bill Filer being a New Yorker. Yeah, trust me, he ain't one of us. In chapter 11, Terrence adds a paragraph to show Axonite activating its nutrition cycle all over the world. Reminiscent of material he'd added to the Spearhead from Space novelization, his first target three years earlier. This chapter, by the way, is titled The Feast of Axos, later adapted as a Big Finish Sixth Doctor audio title. Alas, Terence's predictive powers only extend as far as Big Finish, and not the Chris Chibnall TV canon. Check out this line that now seems quaint and parochial from page 131. An attack on the Time Lords themselves was beyond even the Master's audacity. Chapter 12 is a final example of Terence giving us more. The last line on TV is here, in slightly altered form, but then there's more than another full page of denouement, with a proper exit for Bill Filer, and a final bit of bickering for the Doctor and the Brigadier. Terence also adds a fine line, which I could have sworn was on TV, about how the Doctor wouldn't have left his human friends in the lurch. Well, he would have left them, but not in the lurch.
1: Yes. Well, the Axon said they wanted time travel, and now they've got it.
0: What about the master?
1: I sincerely hope he's with them. Hope? Well, I can't be absolutely sure. I was pretty busy at the time. But I'm 90% certain, though. How much? Well, pretty certain. Well, I suppose he could have got away. Just. This time loop... thing. How did you get out of it? I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. You came back of your own accord. Well, I... Doctor?
0: No. No, I'm afraid not. No, obviously, the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return
1: to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. In short
0: clause of Axos, the book is a terrific bit of world-building, Terence reinventing one of the lesser-beloved lights of the Pertwee era, and making it a classic long novelization with tons of political fencing and double-dealing. Chin gets a final grace note in the book. He is there in the last TV scene without saying any words, his fate never spelled out, but in the book, Terence is sure to tell us, quote, Chin was already safely back in Whitehall, explaining to the minister how his genius had solved the problem. And so Chin lives on, free to fight another day. But for us, next time on Doctor Who Literature, it will be May 1977, and we're back to the Hinchcliffe era, to the first televised Hinchcliffe story, in fact. Not for us, the pleasures of Terrence Dix. We will instead be meeting a first-time target author, who will turn out to be one of the leading writers of the range, and who will contribute books to the line for a full decade to come. The next book is so precious, you'll want to preserve your copy in bubble wrap, green bubble wrap. Join me and a third-time Doctor Who Literature guest as we encounter Ian Martyr, and Doctor Who and The Ark in Space. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Jan Fennec, this podcast can now be found on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, that's drwhonovels. I also write about Dr. Who on Twitter using the hashtag Dr. Who Pilgrimage that's drwhopilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing another novelization, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.